Yeah, Romans 13, verse... Okay, let's take... A, we're going to be reading verses 11 to 14. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in day, brokenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Father, we ask your blessing upon your word. May we help us to understand this, Lord, and help us to work it out in our lives. We pray for the power of your spirit to enable us, Lord, to do what you've called us to do today, to wake up and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to put on the armor of light and lay aside the deeds of darkness. Give us grace today, Lord, as your word comes to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I've found that uh, great men of God throughout the centuries have been those that have lived as though they could be ushered into eternity at any moment. Eternity was something that they thought of often. The Puritan Richard Baxter used to say, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. You hear the solemnity and the seriousness, don't you? when he went to preach. Jonathan Edwards, when he was 19 years old, wrote a list of 70 different resolutions. And on July 8th, 1723, he wrote, resolved to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell torments. John Wesley used to cry, were I to let any soul drop into the pit whom I might have saved from everlasting burnings, I'm not satisfied God would accept my plea. Lord, he was not in my parish. That's what made him a preacher who went out into the fields and preached to the masses rather than stay inside his own single denominational church. Leonard Ravenhill, the revivalist, used to make it his constant prayer. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. So you get the impression that these men of God were, were eternity-focused. They weren't bound to time and sense. They were thinking about the great issues of eternity. And so, therefore, they needed to make their lives count for eternity. And in our text today, Paul's talking about that. He's telling us that we're living on the edge of eternity. And then he tells us how we need to live in light of that sobering reality. Because we are living on the edge of, of eternity, he says there are certain things we have to lay aside and certain things we need to put on. So let's, as we move through this text, let's first just ask the question, what is the time in which we live? Because he says in verse 11, do this knowing the time. Well, what is he talking about? What time? Let's look at that. Do this knowing the time. Do what knowing the time? Well, he's referring back to what he had just said in verses 8 through 10. In verse 8, he says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And we looked at that last week. We are called to pay the debt of love. And this is a debt we'll never pay off. We might pay off every other debt we have, but he says, Owe nothing to anyone except 
to love one another. So this is a debt we will be paying on the rest of our lives. So do this, love your neighbor as yourself. Pay off the debt of love again and again and again, day after day after day. Do this, why should we be doing this? Knowing the time. Now, what time is he talking about? time. Well, he tells us what that time is in three different ways. First of all, he says, we are to know the time, and it's the time that we are to awaken from sleep. That's what he says here. Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Now, who's Paul writing to? Christians. Evidently sleeping Christians, because he tells these Christians to wake up. Know the time and waken from sleep. Did you know it's possible for Christians to be asleep? Spiritually speaking. Of course, we all sleep. <laughs> I'm talking about spiritually speaking, we can be asleep. And Paul says, you need to wake up. Now, what is he talking about? If you think about a, a person who's dead, and let's say a, one of us fell over dead, he had a heart attack and we're are no longer any pulse, no brain activity, you're not breathing. So he's just lying there still, not moving a muscle, right? He's dead. And then take somebody else who's asleep. And let's say they're not talking in their sleep or they're not jerking around, but they're just lying there. Those two people will look very, very similar, won't they? A sleeping Christian can look a lot like a dead unbeliever, someone who's dead in their trespasses and sins. They can look a lot like the world around them. And Paul says, don't do that. Wake up. Don't allow yourself to go through this life spiritually asleep. Wake up. Rouse yourself to action. Don't look like the world around you who's dead in their sins. But sadly, sometimes we do. A.W. Pink I'm going to read a, a lengthy quote to you from A.W. Pink's book on, the, on practical Christianity, where he addresses this. He says, what an absurdity. Dozing on the verge of eternity? A Christian is one who, in contrast to the unregenerate, has been awakened from the sleep of death and trespasses and sins, made to realize the unspeakable awfulness of the endless misery in hell and the ineffable joy of everlasting bliss in heaven and thereby brought to recognize the seriousness and solemnity of life. A Christian is one who has been taught experientially the worth of all mundane things and the preciousness of divine things. He has turned his back on vanity fair. So he's referring here to Pilgrim's Progress. And he has started out on his journey to the celestial city. He has been quickened into newness of life and supplied with the most powerful incentives to press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Nevertheless, it is sadly possible for him to suffer a relapse, for his zeal to abate, his graces to languish, for him to leave his first love and become weary and well-doing. Yea, unless he be very much on his guard, drowsiness will over him, and he will fall asleep. Corruption still indwell in him, and sin has a stupefying effect. He is yet in this evil world, and it exerts a devitalizing influence. Satan seeks to devour him, and unless resisted steadfastly, will hypnotize him. Thus the menace of this spiritual sleeping sickness is very real. Slumbering saints, what an incongruity! 
taking their ease while threatened by danger, lazing instead of fighting the good fight of faith, trifling away opportunities to glorify their Savior instead of redeeming the time, resting instead of wearing out in his service. So he's, ta- he's describing for us what it would be like for a Christian to be spiritually asleep. And we're all tempted, and there is a proneness in us, unless we fight it, to go into this spiritual sleep that we need to be roused out of. We need to awake from sleep. Are you sleeping today, or are you wide awake to God and to Christ and to his glories? Do your, does your life look like an unbeliever's life, or does you look like a totally... Uh, a live person in Jesus Christ. So, knowing the time. The time is that we need to be waking up from sleep. Secondly, it's a time when salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. That's the next thing he tells us. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, that may sound odd to you because you think, well, wait a minute. Haven't I already been saved? Why is he telling me that I'm going to be saved? Salvation is nearer than when I believed? You mean I I don't have it yet and I'm waiting to get it? Well, the reason he can talk like this is because the Bible talks about salvation in three different tenses, past, present, and future. It just depends on the passage, what tense they're describing. For example, past tense. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved. Now that's past tense, right? Something that's already happened to us. And we call this justification. We've been cleansed of sin, and the Lord Jesus Christ's righteousness has been covered, or we, he's been covered us with that. So that's the past tense of salvation. There's also a present tense. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, and I'm going to quote it in what the Greek says literally. Okay, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are being saved. That's what it literally says. It's present tense. You are being saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So we call this sanctification. Past tense of salvation is justification. Present tense is sanctification, where we're being saved from the power of sin. And then this last one is future. We will be saved one day. That's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 13. And that's what Peter was talking about in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So there is a sense in which our salvation will be revealed to us in the last time. It hasn't been revealed in this way yet to us, but it will be revealed to us in the last time. So we have been saved from the penalty of sin, justification. We are being saved from the power of sin, sanctification. We will be saved from the presence of sin, glorification. All three are true, and it just depends on which passage of Scripture you're looking at. You have to figure out what is he talking about in that passage. Here he's talking about glorification. Now salvation in its future, full, complete, culminating sense that aspect of salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So, I first believed unto salvation, I believe it was 1979. So here we are in 2020, 
And now that ultimate sense of my salvation is nearer to me than when I believed in 1979. It's closer. So he's saying, love your neighbor as yourself, knowing the time, that it's time to wake up if you're spiritually asleep. And it's time to realize you're closer and getting closer every day to that future perfect climax where sin will be no more in your life. Your body will be completely redeemed and you're going to see your Savior face to face. And then thirdly, the time is marked by this. It's the time when the night is almost gone and the day's at hand. That's what he says next in verse 12. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Now what does he mean by that? Well, it helps us to compare this with John chapter 9 and the words of Jesus. This is what Jesus says, and it's in reference to the man who was born blind that Jesus healed. Jesus said in John 9, 4, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now there are two things that are parallel here. The first one is, as long as it is day, is parallel to while I am in the world. So what did Jesus mean by the day? While he was physically present with his disciples in the world, that was the daytime. When he left, when he was crucified and went back to heaven, it was going to be night. Night stands for ignorance, sin, sorrow, suffering, the works of darkness. So when Jesus is absent, physically I'm talking about, he's always spiritually present, but he's physically absent, it's night. When he was physically present with his disciples, it was day. So take that understanding back to Romans 13. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. It's near. This must be talking about the time when we are physically with Jesus and we see him face to face, exactly what he had just told us. This full sense of salvation um, is nearer to us than when we believed. And when it arrives, day, night will be gone and day will be right here at hand. So, if all that is true, then the night, that time of darkness, that time of sin and sorrow and Satan's powerful sway is almost gone and Christ's day when he's with us. Now this day can happen either when we die and we're present with Christ or it can happen when Jesus Christ returns and he's physically present with us. But in either case, our, our day has come and night is gone. So he's saying, hey folks, you're living on the edge of eternity. This day, or I'm sorry, this night is almost over. The, the day is breaking. It's like when you go out here at 4.30 in the morning, it's dark, but you can see just a tiny speck of light in this direction. And you know in just an hour or two, you're going to have like it's now, it's perfectly light outside. The dawn is almost upon us. Eternity's breaking upon your soul, and it can happen any time. Live in light of that eternity that's breaking upon you, because day is almost near. 
Now, he's told us what time it is. <clears throat> he said it's time to wake up. It's time that our future salvation is very near to us. It's the time when night is almost gone, day is at hand. So how are we to live in light of that fact? Well, he tells us, therefore, and here comes his application. Here's his exhortation to believers. Therefore, because you are living in this particular time, when you're on the razor edge of eternity, this is how you ought to live. There are things you need to put aside, and there are things you need to put on. Aside something and putting on something, what does it remind you of? What's the imagery? Your clothes, right? Right? You, at night, you take off your day clothes and you put on your night clothes, right? And in the morning, you take off your night clothes and you put on your day clothes. You change clothes. He's saying, take, take off certain clothes and put on certain other clothes because you belong to the day. You belong to the light. You belong to Jesus Christ and not the night. And he, he describes what we're supposed to lay aside as, in verse 12, the deeds of darkness. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. And then he describes these deeds of darkness in verse 13 in three different pairs. The first pair is carousing and drunkenness. The second pair, sexual promiscuity and sensuality. The third pair, strife and jealousy. Those are deeds of darkness. Now, he's not giving us a comprehensive list. These are just samples of what the deeds of darkness are like. They're like drunkenness, carousing, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife, jealousy. Those are the deeds of darkness, and we're to lay those things aside as not fitting to those who are now sons and daughters of light. Nobody wears their pajamas to work, right? Unless you work at home and you're in front of your computer all day. But if you go to work, you don't stay in your pajamas. And you don't wear old dirty clothes full of holes to a fancy dinner party where everyone's wearing their suit and tie. You dress appropriately for the occasion. And that's why he says in verse 13, let us behave properly or appropriately. There is an appropriate dress, an appropriate way of living that the Christian is to put on. And there is an appropriate way, an improper way that he's to lay aside. So let's think about these examples that he gives us here. Carousing and drunkenness. Carousing. If I were to try to sum up carousing and drunkenness, I would say partying. And that's what, if you talk to people in the world, I mean, it seems like that is what's on their mind. The next party that they get to go to. They can't wait for the weekend because it's party time, you know? Partying, drugs, alcohol. Sexual promiscuity. They're, they want to live it up. Indulge their flesh. And then he mentions sexual promiscuity. That flows naturally out of drunken and drunken housing, right? Because your senses have been dulled. You are breaking free from restraints. The drugs and alcohol have enabled you to kind of not feel badly about doing things you ordinarily would think twice about. And so there's sexual promiscuity taking place. Sensuality. Fornication, adultery. And then he says strife and jealousy. Strife and jealousy, this is the natural outflow of people who are self-centered and want to be the center of attention. They want people to, be, to notice them. They want to be the prominent ones. 
They want to have the power. They want to have people's focus. And so there's strife because everybody feels the same way. They all want to be the center of attention. So there's strife and there's jealousy. I want to have what that person's got. I want to have what they have. And he says here that those are works of the flesh. He caps the whole thing off in verse 14 by saying, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So I take that to mean that verse 13 is describing the flesh. Carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife, and jealousy. Now you might think, strife and jealousy, how is that the lust of the flesh? Well, you can have an outward lust of the flesh dealing with bodily appetites, and you can also have, see the flesh is talking about your corrupt nature. And you can have inward sins of the flesh as well. Um, we know that because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So he speaks about the desires of the mind, the desires of the flesh, and lumps them all together under this phrase, the lusts of our flesh. So we are to make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So this, if you were to categorize these, maybe you would say the first one, substance abuse. You could categorize alcohol abuse, uh, drug abuse under that same category, right? Any kind of substance abuse. Secondly, sexual promiscuity, sleeping around, not being faithful to a husband or wife, sensuality. And then thirdly, the sins of the mind, jealousy, envy, pride, strife, arrogance, the sins that go on inside of our minds. And these are the lusts of the flesh. And then he, he tells us here in verse 14 to make no provision for the lusts of the flesh. In other words, if you have a problem being disciplined with alcohol, do not make plans to hang out with your old party buddies because you're going to fall. If you have a problem keeping yourself sexually pure, don't visit your girlfriend alone in her apartment because you'll fall. If you have a problem overeating, don't make plans to go out and buy a carton of chocolate peanut butter ice cream and eat the whole thing. <laughs> he says, don't make provision. What, what's a provision? Think about the word provision. We used to use that word um, like in the 1800s when people set off on a trip, they talk about the provisions. Well, they're talking about the foods that they need to provide in order to make it from point A to point B. I ha we have to make sure we have enough of this or we're, if we run out, we're in real trouble on this trip. Provisions. The things that we need. Do not make provision. Do not provide for the lusts of your flesh. Now, all of us have flesh. All of us have lusts that come along with our flesh. Well, God, the command of God is don't make provision for it. In other words, don't provide ahead of time for those things that are going to cause you to fall. It, it's a no-brainer, really, right? It, we ought to know this, but Paul tells us anyway. It's like an army besieging a city. They, they dig a trench around the city. They 
camp out. So those army, those soldiers just camp out around that city. There's a trench around it, and they just wait it out because they know eventually soon the city's going to run out, and they're going to starve to death or they're going to surrender. So rather than even having to lift a sword to fight the battle, they just wait. And it may take a month or three months, but eventually they're going to win the battle just by waiting. What they're doing is they're stripping away the people in that city from any provisions. So they grow weaker and weaker and weaker until they either die or surrender. Well, we need to starve the flesh in those areas where it is a problem to us. Instead of making provision for it, we need to cut it off, cut off the supply chain to the flesh. Because if we give an inch, it'll take a mile. Amen? We, we, know, we know what the end result will be if we make provision. So, that's what we need to do. We need to lay aside the lusts of our flesh, and those can look like in abusing substances, it can look like sexual promiscuity. It can look like sins of the mind. So take notice of your particular battles. We all don't have the same struggles in, in the area of our flesh. We have different struggles. We need to know ourselves, know what the struggle is, and ask the Lord, Lord, is there anything I'm doing to make provision for that, that I need to cut off? I need to starve that thing out of my life. And then act on it. But that's not all he tells us. He also tells us there's something we need to put on. He tells us that in verse 12. Put on the armor of light. Now, if he's telling you to put on armor, what does that immediately tell you about yourself? You're in a war, and you are a soldier. Right? You are in a war, which we are. We're warring against Satan and all of his minions. We're warring against our flesh. We're warring against sin. And we are soldiers. And Paul tells us that in many places of the New Testament. He compares Timothy to a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So, as soldiers, we need to fight the prince of darkness. Now, he says, put on armor. And the armor we're supposed to put on is the armor of light. That should tell us that it's, it's the armor that is associated with the kingdom of Christ. Because when Christ is with us, day is here. Light is here. So this is his kingdom, and we're to put on the armor that is associated with Christ and his kingdom. Now, what is that armor that he's talking to us about? Well, verse 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 12, put on the armor of light. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things must be synonymous with one another. There is one other passage in the New Testament where Paul talks about the same things he's talking about here in Romans 13, and it will help us here. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 to 8. So here Paul says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. Doesn't that sound familiar? Wake up. Let us not sleep, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, 
Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many parallels between this passage and the passage in Romans. For example, both of these exhort us not to sleep or to wake up. Both speak of night and darkness, day and light. Both mention getting drunk. Both mention armor. And both mention a future salvation that we will one day obtain. So, when he writes 13, he has the same thing in mind that when he's writing 1 Thessalonians 5. And that's helpful because he gives us an example of the armor of light here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. He says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So the armor of light, at least, consists of faith, love, and hope. Sound familiar? 1 Corinthians 13, now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So the armor that God has given you as a Christian consists of faith, hope, and love. But since this armor of light is also called Jesus Christ, put on the armor of light, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, this faith, hope, and love must relate to Jesus. That's my conclusion. So it's not, the faith is faith in Christ. The love is love for Christ. The hope is hope in Christ. Now how does this work to give us victory over sin? How does this armor help us to defeat sin in our lives? Well, let's think about these three pieces of armor. Faith, hope, love. First of all, faith. We need to have faith in Christ. In other words, we need to believe that Jesus is more satisfying than the sin that's presented to us. Do you see? If your faith is in Christ, your faith in Christ is stronger than your faith that that sin will provide you satisfaction, you will be able to overcome that particular sin. But if you really think that sin is going to give you satisfaction, Jesus will do the sin. It comes down to faith. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ and who he is for us. What about hope? We need to have the future expectation that Jesus will be more for us throughout eternity than this sin will be for me right now. So my hope, all of my hope is directed to, in Christ towards the glory of sharing that glory with him and walking with him and knowing him in a greater way than I do now. And then love. We need to love Jesus enough that it moves us to obey his commandments because he said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So the armor, love, love for Jesus, hope, hope in Jesus, faith, faith right now in Jesus. So let's draw this down to a conclusion this morning. I find it interesting that he doesn't just tell us to lay aside the deeds of darkness. He could have stopped there, right? Stop sinning. End of story, period, go on with chapter 14. But he doesn't do that. He says, lay aside the deeds of darkness, but put on the armor of light. In other words, it's not enough for Paul simply to tell us to stop doing what is wrong. I believe he tells us how to do that by telling us what we are to do positively. And what we are to do positively is to put on the armor of light, which is Christ, 
faith in Christ, hope in Christ, love for Christ, or to put that on, and that will help us to defeat those deeds of the flesh that he's already mentioned. In other words, we could say it like this. Paul doesn't simply say, stop sinning, stop sinning, stop sinning. He also tells us to put on Christ, put on Christ, put on Christ. And as you put on Christ, you will be able to stop the evil deeds that are going on in your life. If all we ever think about when temptation comes to us is, I've got to say no, I've got to say no. What's your focus at that moment? Well, isn't it the sin that you're trying to say no to? You're focusing on the sin. And so where does the strength, where, where do you try to derive the strength to say no to that sin that's right at your doorstep? Isn't it from yourself? But if you say yes to Jesus, what am I focused on now? Jesus. What, where am I going to get the strength to do what I want to do? Isn't it from Jesus? So you might say this is just semantics, Brian. I think it's more than semantics. It's, it's true. The Bible tells us over and over again to lay aside the deeds of darkness, to crucify the deeds of the flesh, to stop sinning. It does tell us that. Abstain from every worldly flesh that wages war against the soul. But it also tells us to put on Christ. Say yes to him. If you're going to say no to Jesus, at least say yes to him twice. Because I think that's where we're going to get the strength and power to, to lay aside these deeds of darkness. It's from Jesus. We need his power, not our own. And so I want to encourage you with that today. And you'll probably find something today where you're going to need this. And every day. Say yes to him. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I surrender right now. Yes, Lord, I submit to your word. Yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I believe in you. Yes, Lord, my hope is in you. Those are the kind of things that we could be, should be talking to ourselves and saying to Jesus when we find the urge to do something that we know is not pleasing in his sight. So this morning the Lord has spoken to us. He's told us that we live in a particular time. We live on the edge of eternity. Adoniram Judson in the early uh, 18th century excuse me, 19th century, was a missionary to Burma. And this is what he once wrote in his journal. He said, a life once spent is irrevocable. It will remain to be contemplated through eternity. The same may be said of each day. When it is once passed, it is gone forever. Each day will not only be a witness of our conduct, but will affect our everlasting destiny. How shall we then wish to see each day marked with usefulness? It is too late to mend the days that are past. The future is in our power. Let us then each morning resolve to send the day into eternity in such a garb as we shall wish it were forever. And at night, let us reflect that one more day is irrevocably gone, indelibly marked. Do we ever think like that? Is that part of our thinking? Before my head hits the pillow, Lord, another day is gone. I'm one day closer to eternity. I can't get that day back. Lord, did I, did I live that day the way you wanted me to live it or not? Was I indulging in the deeds of darkness or was I putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? So brothers and sisters, 
Let's wake up today to eternal realities. Let's stop looking and acting like the rest of the world because they are of the darkness, we are of the day, we are of the light. Let's put on Christ, who is the armor of light. And all of this reminds me of a song that Fernando, he said he wrote a song in jail. And uh, he sang it to me a few years back when we were driving around. And here are the lyrics. Jesus, be Jesus in me. No longer me, but thee. Resurrection power, fill me this hour. Jesus, be Jesus in me. <laughs> I thought, good lyrics, my brother. Be, be yourself in me. Isn't that what Paul said in Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life that I live in the flesh, I no longer live I no longer live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Let's go to the Lord and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, living the Christian life is not easy. You know that. But it can be done but in your power and strength. And Lord, we pray that you would help us for every time that we recognize and realize we need to stop and we need to say no. Lord, let us open up our mouths and say yes to you, looking to Christ away, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, you started this salvation and you will finish it. We realize that. We need you, Lord. We need you every hour. Lord, let us not so, so easily trivialize our lives and, and waste them away. Lord, we don't know whether all of us will still be together in a year. We have no idea. Some may have entered the portals of eternity and they're now seeing their Savior face to face and their life is gone. They can't redo it. They, there's nothing they can do to relive it. It's fixed for eternity. And so, Lord, let us keep that in our minds as we go through our days to live every day for eternity. And we pray in this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Any thoughts that you want to share?